Um, I don't know if you've ever wondered, I'm sure you have, what Jesus looked like. Or if you've ever wondered what God looks like. Um, when, we, when we see Jesus, when we meet Him, uh, what are we going to see? What is that experience going to be like? Uh, there is uh, the song that was popular when I was in high school. I can only imagine what it will be like when I stand in God's presence. Uh, will I sing? Will I dance? Will I celebrate? Will I rejoice? And it goes through this whole list of possible emotions. And yet over and over again in, uh, in the Bible, when someone's in the presence of God, their general reaction is to fall down as low as they can to the ground and beg that God not kill them or destroy them, uh, which didn't make the song. Uh, no one, uh, the song didn't include a lyric of like, will I fall down in terror for my life? Um, but it's an interesting thing. It was one of my favorite things to do when I'm engaging with kids or teens, whether it's at church camp or somewhere else, once upon a time, uh, I was a youth minister. Uh, and it's fun to ask teens, uh, draw a picture of God. Uh, and it's interesting because they, there's a lot of kind of conformity to what they think God looks like. Very little of it based in, in Scripture. Um, he often looks a lot like you would expect him to see, be in a movie. Uh, you often get something that actually looks like a, if, if Santa Claus became king and only wore white, that's kind of what God ends up looking like in a lot of children's imaginations. Um, but we don't get that from Scripture. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us God has a beard. And yet I think almost all of us, if we imagine God personified, give him a beard for some reason. Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about what God looks like what the image of Jesus actually is. This is something that has been uh, part of Christian history, uh, but not early history. The, the first century Christians, the ones that actually saw Jesus and the ones that talked to people who knew what Jesus looked like, uh, didn't leave us any pictures. And the reason that that's true is that almost all of them uh, were Jews. Uh, almost all of them were Jews or were either Greeks who were becoming part of this new Christian Jewish community. And one of the real principles of Judaism was that you don't draw pictures or make statues in the image of the gods, especially ours. And so we have very little Jewish art or imagery, uh, virtually none, of what they thought God looked like. Because one of the commands is, of course, to make no images that you would worship uh, above me. And so often what we know that God meant by that is no idols to other gods, no idols to the Baals, no idols to the Ashereths. Uh, but what we also see is the time that, that Israel built its own golden calf and worshipped it in the wilderness, they actually go on to say, let us worship this God that brought us out of Egypt. They think the cow represents the God that brought them out of Egypt. Now we know that that's not the God that brought them out of Egypt, is, is a calf made out of gold. But they start worshiping this calf, and God is furious. Right. We're not going to get into that text today, but it sets off a long tradition in Judaism of, hey, we don't build pictures, statues, art, or anything that shows what God looks like. Uh, he is bigger and greater than you can imagine. The artist can't get close, so don't even bother trying. Uh, and so when Jesus walks among us, and Jesus is alive in this world, uh, no one drew pictures of him for a couple hundred years because they followed that, Judea, that, that practice of Judaism of not making images uh, of Jesus. And so it really is about 235 A.D. in Syria 
when we get kind of the first historical image that we've found and uncovered, that all our archaeologists have found, of what Jesus may have looked like. In this image, which is uh, blurry, not because our projector is bad, but because, um, well, the artist was a long, long, long time ago. But this is a painting of Jesus as a good shepherd. He's shown as young, with short hair, dignified, and a, and a shaved face. Uh, but really, by the third century, when we start seeing many more images of Jesus, uh, these are appearing almost uh, entirely in the catacombs and the tombs of Rome. So when people uh, imagine their final moments, they're imagining what they're going to see in their next moments. And so the catacombs of Rome are filled with images of Jesus. And, and it, from that point on, he's shown almost universally as bearded with long hair. And the most common form of him in those years was the good shepherd of his sheep. Uh, this is one of the oldest uh, images in the catacombs. And you kind of see the, the alpha and the omega up there showing that they believe that Jesus was the beginning and the end. And he's got that halo that was common for Christian art of that time. Uh, recently, several groups have tried to reimagine Jesus using AI. AI is all the rage these days. People are doing all kinds of things with it. Uh, and as they've tried to imagine, what, what, would, what is AI, computers, that have all of the historical inputs of, of humanity put into them, what do they think Jesus would have looked like? Uh, and so one of those AI groups, uh, one person imagined what it would look like if Jesus had taken a selfie with the apostles. So you get this one. Isn't that wild? Um, I don't know how long you would have asked me to come up with interesting pictures of Jesus before I would have said, what would it look like if Jesus took a selfie of himself? But someone came up with it. Uh, it made the news. Uh, came up with this one. And they said, well, what if he took a selfie, uh, like with the timer of all of them at the Last Supper? And so you'd get something like this. So there's the selfie of the Last Supper. Um, it's, it's, there's something about these images that grabs me. Uh, it, it's something that makes them look kind of fake and real at the same time that I, I don't know what it is. But it's interesting that people continue trying to find new ways to explore the question, what did Jesus look like? The newest one that made the news this week is some of you may think the Shroud of Turin was, was legitimately Jesus's uh, tomb garment. Some of you may not. Uh, I'm not going to get into that today. Um, but the Shroud of Turin is a document that many believe to be the shroud that was over Jesus when he was resurrected. And that the flash of brilliant light that would have occurred at that moment produced a reverse negative image of what Jesus looks like, basically a photograph on this shroud. And so this has been a, a Christian relic for centuries. Uh, well, they got the shroud and they scanned it. Well, someone took the scan and ran it through AI and said, based on this image, uh, of the Shroud of Turin, what would Jesus look like uh, if that was a picture? And so they came up with this image. And so this is actually an AI rendered image of the Shroud of Turin uh, that says that, that he would have looked like this. So someone in history looked like this. Maybe it was Jesus, maybe it wasn't. But over and over, people want to know, what did Jesus look like? What did God look like? And the question has been asked in various forms even long before Jesus was ever born. Uh, you know, there's uh, in the Old Testament, there was the idea of seeing God's image. Uh, and as I mentioned, it was either seen as scandalous or dangerous. 
It was a form of idolatry or it was a, 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 you would be risking getting in trouble with God or if you saw God, uh, you would risk death. And the reason that they thought that is because God told them that he was so holy that nobody could see him and live. So in Exodus 33, this is just the second chapter or second book of the Bible. There's this occasion where Moses, who is an incredible friend of God, an incredible follower of God, an obedient leader of God's people. And in Exodus 33, uh, there is this occasion where God says to Moses, Moses asks him, can I see you? And I want to read this text to you. We're going to start in verse 18. Then Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The face of God is too glorious for Moses to see it and live. And I don't know if you heard it. One of the things God says here is, you're my friend, and because of that, I'm going to do this for you. But I'm only going to give you as much as you can bear, because all of me is too much for you. He says, but I will proclaim to you my name. And it's an interesting thing. We think about the names of God often uh, in all the different ways that Scripture describes God. But this is a moment where God says, I will proclaim my name to you. And here's the name that he gives. The Lord whom I, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's the judge. He's the giver of mercy and the giver of compassion, but he's also the one who decides the limits of it. And God proclaims his name, and he puts Moses in the rock, and he passes by, and after he leaves, he moves his hand, and Moses sees his backside, because that's as much glory as he can tolerate as a human. God is amazing. And so when you ask the question, what does God look like? What you need to know is that from the very beginning, God is so glorious and so other and so magnificent that your eyes can't even handle it. That the, the, being in the very presence of God is dangerous to your health and your safety. And there's another occasion on 1 Kings where Elijah has fled to, to Mount Horeb. Uh, and on this occasion... He has become discouraged. Uh, this is right after Elijah has just had like the greatest uh, defeat of false prophets of all time in the Old Testament. Uh, he gets in this battle where he has these prophets and they're marching around an altar and they're having a contest about whose gods are real. And Elijah says the God of Isaac and Abraham and, uh, and Jacob is the God. He's the only God. And they say, well, we've got other gods we worship and we think they're a big deal. And so they have a duel which is a pretty awesome concept to have a God duel. And, and they build an altar, cover it in stones, uh, and they put an offering on it. And these false prophets start going around it over and over and over again. And they start cutting themselves and they're chanting and they're yelling and they're being crazy. Um, Elijah starts taunting them. He says, I don't think you're being loud enough. Your gods can't hear you. 
Um, he, at one point, he gives them a taunt that in today's parlance is something like, maybe they're in the bathroom, yell louder. Um, they weren't in the bathroom, uh, and eventually they give up. Um, then Elijah comes up, and he says, listen, soak the altar with all the water you can. And he prays to God, and God sends down fire from heaven and consumes the offering, the stones, the water, and just leaves burnt dirt. It's the greatest victory. The people are so convinced that they killed the false prophets. Elijah has this great moment. And you just expect him to like stand up and be like, God is one and I am his prophet. And instead an evil queen puts out a death warrant on him. And he gets terrified. And he loses faith. And he's exhausted. And he runs until he falls asleep under a bush. And then he runs until he gets to a cave. And all through this, God's with him. And he gets to the cave, and God wants to show up to Elijah in this moment. He's exhausted in his ministry. What's amazing is that, that I think a lot of us have experienced this too. How many of you have ever been on a, a church camp or a mission trip or some kind of a thing where you go and you experience God in nature, and you're like, man, this is it. I'm on the mountain with God. And then you come back to, to the real world. And when you get back in the real world, you kind of get there and go, man, I'm tired. I am behind at work. I'm behind at home. I forgot how many problems I had going on. And all of a sudden, I can't even think about the mountaintop. I'm in the pit. So we know how Elijah felt. In this moment when Elijah is in the pit, God chooses to show up to him. Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not end in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. If you're Elijah at this point, aren't you kind of sitting here going, man, this is a lot of natural disasters to be watching from the face of a cave. This is terrifying. We skim over these stories and don't think about what it's like to, to basically see a tornado come past a cave while you're standing there. To have an earthquake. You know where you don't want to be? I, on my list of places I don't want to be in an earthquake, top five, cave. Right? What about you guys? Holding on to the walls, holding up the ceiling, waiting for this moment to pass. It passes. And you're thinking, man, where, where is God and what is he doing? And then fire, just, I mean, can you imagine having to back up and shield yourself in a cave, which becomes an oven when fire's roaring past the entrance. But God was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah shares with him at that point all of his burdens. And God gives him a new vision and new mission. And this story is incredible. And it doesn't have an easy interpretive guide at the end of it. Where it's like, this is what you're supposed to get out of this story. But I think there's something there for us. In that... That so often when we get down in the dumps and the trudgery of life and, and we can't even remember what things were like on the mountain, God wants us to remember he's got all the power. He's got the power of the wind and the fire and the earthquakes. It's all in his hand. But he loves us enough 
to show up in the whisper, the gentle reminder. What are you doing here? And you notice when Elijah hears the whisper, he's already seen the ferocity of God, but it's the whisper that causes him to step to the edge of the cave and cover his face because he knows he's in the midst of something holy. He knows he's in the midst of something that he can't withstand. He can look in the face of all the ferocity of God, but the real holiness of God is too much and he covers his face because God's image is too much for us. So fast forward to Jesus teaching his apostles shortly before the time for his arrest and crucifixion. And it's shortly before that, we're in the section in, in John 14 where he's talking to the apostles. And he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, uh, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way to the place where you're going. How can we know the way? Which is a pretty good uh, question. Thomas gets a, a lot of um, critiques for his questions. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's got lots of rooms. You can come stay there. These guys would have thought, you mean the temple? Yeah. They didn't ask about the temple. Jesus is saying, no, it's another place. I've got to go there. I've got to prepare it. I'll come back so that you can go where I'm going. And Thomas says, we don't know the way. We don't have a map. You haven't given us the coordinates. Google hasn't been invented yet. How will we ever get there? And Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus isn't just the destination. He's how you get there. Jesus isn't just where we're going. He's the way to get where we are going. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they know the stories of Moses in the cleft of the rock. They know the stories of Elijah at the mouth of the cave. And so when Jesus says, you have seen him, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. He sounds like Moses. He knows he's asking the Moses question. He's throwing the, the Hail Mary of discipleship here and being like, hey, does following you mean we get to see the face of God like even Moses didn't get to see? And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. He says, listen, here's what you need to know. You want to see God? You already have. 
He's like, Philip, don't you, don't you know? Haven't you seen? Haven't you been paying attention? God is in me. You want to hear a word from God? Every word I've said has come from the Father because the Father lives in me. You want to know uh, what it is that, that God looks like? He looks like me because I am the Father. Don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the face of God? And we just see this, and, and we're so used to the idea that God and Jesus and the Spirit are one that we just kind of skim over this and keep reading to the next thing. These guys are going, are you serious? Moses didn't get to see the face of God. Elijah covered his face at the front of the cave. And we're here now with God in the flesh? Is walking with us, telling us that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father? And then Jesus says something that, that changes the entire course of human history. He says, don't you know that whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these? He says, listen, if you don't believe me based on what I say, believe because I've done miracles and I've walked on water and I've fed thousands. Believe that the Father is in me because of that. But here's the cool part, Jesus says, you're, if you're my disciple, going to do better stuff than I have. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That last line gives you the weight of what they're feeling. As Jesus tells them that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to go be with the Father and to prepare a place for them, they feel like they're being told that their parent's about to leave them that they're going to be left as orphans. And he says, you don't have to worry about that. The Father and I are one because the Father has been living in me. But you now are going to do even greater things because the Spirit of God is going to take up residence in you. And if you have the Spirit, you're going to keep being the people who do greater things. And, and what is incredible about this is that what that means is that you and I are now the image of God and the image of Christ in the world by the power and working of the Holy Spirit. Our job description as Christians is nothing less than being the image of God and the image of Christ to a world that says, hey, if you are who you say you are, show us the Father. And we should be so bold as to say, don't you know that if you've seen us, you've seen the Father and the Son because the Spirit dwells in us. And that becomes a pretty big job description for us going forward. We're going to pick up there next week in thinking about what does it mean for us to actually live as the people that are the image bearers of the Father and the image bearers of the Son in a world that asks what Philip asked and Moses asked and Elijah needed. How can we see the face of God and live because because of Jesus and his death and resurrection the answer is you can only see the face of God because he lived 
Because Jesus lived, we can see the face of God. And because he died on the cross and we're baptized into that, we become the people that can see the face of God and we begin to become the face of Christ in the world. If you're here this morning and you've never received that invitation to be baptized into the people that are the image of Christ in the world today, and you want to do that today, come forward this morning while we stand and sing.